Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Chris and I have now produced 42 episodes. It's been such a meaningful and amazing adventure. And I've been thinking about how to get more feedback from our listeners, how to connect with you guys on a deeper level. Initially, I thought I would do some sort of, I don't know, survey monkey thing, but that seems so COVID-y and distant and not that much fun. So, I've decided to do a little experiment in connection and podcast feedback. I invite you to email me on my website, craigheacockmd.com, if you're interested in having a phone or video chat with me about Back from the Abyss. I'd love to know who you are, how you found the podcast, what you like, what moves you, what you'd like to see more of, what you'd like to see less of. All constructive criticism is welcome. I'm thinking that I'll pick some number of responses. I'm not sure how many yet, and I'll give each person a call. I'm actually really excited to reach out to you, so just let me know if you're interested. This episode is not like anything we've had on Back from the Abyss before. Late last year, I got an email from Ian Jaded, a Colorado-based author, artist, and video producer, who said that he had some stories that might be interesting for the show. So I reached out to him and found... Holy cow. Ian has so many stories, many of them with themes we've never explored on the podcast. So after a few phone calls, we distilled the magical mystery tour of his fascinating life into two major abyss stories. First, Ian's descent into eventual breakdown and brief psychosis after his psychonaut plunge into the realm of lucid dreaming. Then later, Ian used the African psychedelic Iboga, or Ibogaine, to pull himself out of the hell of opiate addiction. Before talking to Ian, I was only very faintly aware of lucid dreaming. I thought it was some type of especially vivid dreams, which were not actually meaningful or physiologically different from REM-based dreaming. How wrong I was. It turns out that lucid dreaming is an amalgam of a REM dream state and a fully activated and essentially awake parietal lobe. EEG studies of lucid dreaming prove that parts of the brain are in a REM electrical pattern, while other parts of the cortex appear completely awake with a beta-type electrical rhythm. On the subjective level, this amalgam of REM sleep and awakened cortex could account for the feeling of being not just awake during the lucid dream, but also being able to control the action and even alter the dream context. And on a medical psychiatric level, By not having the human brain go into its normal sleep architecture, with intermittent periods of full brain REM sleep, REM deprivation can lead to mental and emotional collapse. The first experience I had was when I was about 19, and I'm 48. So we're talking, you know, a a while ago. (laughs) So we're talking about 30 years ago or so. And... You know, at that time, I you know I was a teenager. I was I had no background in this whatsoever. I didn't even know the word lucid dreaming, or you know, I'd heard of the idea of out of body experiences and that sort of thing, which we we can get into deeper if you'd like to later. But um, this first experience absolutely blew me away. And what what happened was is that, and you know, the setup is important. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the setup. I was woken up at like five in the morning because I had to take my mom to work because I wanted to use her car during the day. So I took her to work early in the morning, but then I went back to bed. And that is really important because when this lucid dreaming will often happen for people when they're kind of like in a slightly awakened state a little bit, like your body has been awakened, your mind has been awakened. I had to go drive a car kind of across town, get her to work. And then I came back and then I fell back asleep. I was still tired. So my mind had been kind of in this highly focused state, but then my body was still like, you know, I was a growing, growing teenager. So I needed more sleep. So I fell, I fell deeply back into sleep, but then, so about 45 minutes or so after I fell asleep, I, uh, I found myself in a forest (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it was the most realistic scene I had ever been immersed in in my life. And I had no idea what was going on. 
The only thing that I knew was that I knew that my body was asleep. I was fully conscious. I knew what was going on. I'm like, I'm like, I know I just took my mom to work. I know I just fell back asleep. I know that my body is asleep, but this is not a dream state. That's all that I knew. I didn't know anything else, but in my heart of hearts, I'm like, something is going on here that is profoundly different. And, and I kind of, just and this first experience just unfolded for me where i kind of wandered around this incredible forest it was a it was a autumn morning and uh it looked like what the land would have looked like maybe 200 years ago like the forest was completely overgrown and there was no you know there's no roads there's you know not, there's nothing uh, you know of any sort of human civilization around me whatsoever and so when i woke up later and i'm trying to describe this experience later to people i'm like i'm like i had this thing happen to me but you know and then you, you, knew when it, you, were, you knew then it wasn't a dream i knew it wasn't a dream but that's all that i knew yeah. exactly but i couldn't tell why and it of course, later as I, you know, the internet wasn't really a thing. This was like 1990, you know, and the internet wasn't really, you couldn't just jump online and start doing research. So I was kind of, my only option was to, you know, go to bookstores and go, okay, well, what am I looking for? Am I looking, you know, what happened? It was the consciousness, the level of consciousness that changed everything. And by that specifically, I mean that I was aware that I was dreaming and that made all of the difference that made that I was fully conscious that I wasn't being strung along by the narrative of the dream state. So, you know, any, in any normal dream state, you know, whatever's going on in your dream, you are just kind of following along the storyline. You're kind of being, you know, tugged along by a leash is the way I kind mm-hmm. of describe it. You know, you're, you're sort of, you take the reality as it's presented to you, right? You know, and it doesn't matter how crazy it is. You know, your dreams, of course, can be whatever. Anything can happen in a dream state. You can be on another planet. You can be a different person. You can, you know, anything can be happening and you accept it as is. And you, you know, you can feel fear. You can feel pain and, uh, you know, your full range of emotions. But but at the end of the day, with any normal dream state, you are just kind of following along with the rules of the dream. This was not the case with me. I was fully awake. I was fully present. Again, like I said, I knew that my body was asleep. I was fully aware of that. Mm-hmm. And, Did it feel uh, like you had agency? Like instead of hundred percent in a reactive <laughs> contextual dream that you exactly more like a first person experiencing driving things. I could completely control everything. In fact, I was walking around this forest for this only this first experience. What's funny is that how how mind-blowing and earth-shattering this was. It, you know, it only lasted for a few minutes. I mean, this was only perhaps a 3-minute ex- experience at first. And yeah, I was able to walk around. I was I was touching things. I was I was putting plants up in my face. I could feel the sun on my face. I could feel the moisture in the air. I could smell the humidity. I mean, it was like, it was insane how realistic it was. I mean, I was, I was picking up leaves and going, my God, I can feel this. I can see the intricacy. What the heck is going on? Like, this is, this is nuts. Sounds like what you're describing is could also be considered by you know in some contexts like a religious experience, a spiritual experience, a almost psychedelic experience. At that point, at 19, I had really no experience with psychoactives. I had no experience with meditation or anything related to spirituality or shamanism. My parents, I, I did not grow up in a really religious household <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. To answer your question, it absolutely, like, I don't know what a religious experience was. I didn't know what that meant to have a religious experience, but that is exactly what I was left with. I'm like, this was a religious experience. Like, this was the stuff that I, I'd heard about in holy books and whatnot, or mm-hmm. what they had been talking about in, in spiritual circles. But again, as I said at first, it took me a long time to understand what made this different. And, uh, 
you know, but then eventually I started finding the right books. I started finding books that, you know, there are, there are lucid dreaming practices in, uh, in Buddhism and shamanism. And it turns out that there have been, had been people studying, uh, lucid dreaming. How, how much are you being strung along by the story of your life? And that's what I started learning that, oh, there's, there's, there's larger life lessons to be learned here. They started kicking in almost nightly. And this, I would say I had these, I started having these kind of intense experiences almost every night for the, about the next 15 years or so, somewhere around there where, and some of these experiences would last sometimes three to five minutes up to several hours. And, and you do know how much time is passing. They've actually, they've proven that pretty well within this in the in the lucid dreaming community that that your sense of time actually matches pretty closely to what's what's going on in the you know the real world so to speak mm-hmm. you know that you do have a pretty good sense of time of of what's going on in there um so yeah this started happening constantly so and each each experience was it it was almost like i was i was being taught in levels like i would be shown something and and it would be so intense and incredible and then sometimes i would need a couple of days to process it and then the lucid dreams would back off like for a couple of days where i was just processing and i was just going into normal rem sleep and uh, during the day i would just kind of wrestling philosophically with with uh, what was going on and then because then think- i would just be hit i would just be hit for like you know two weeks at a time you know where it was just non-stop like it's like it seemed like the majority of my nightlife was filled up with just lucidity and going walking into these worlds and mm-hmm. exploring them and uh yeah. it was a lot to take <laughs> in one in one respects too so many questions about this one is that i mean wondered if you were finding yourself wanting to be in that world even more than the regular world because it was so vivid and fascinating and unexpected and uh i mean were you yeah finding yourself <laughs> on board wanting to actually go to bed and and be in these states than actually face sort of the day-to-day a little bit, yeah, because especially at first, because it was like for me as a teenager when these kicked in, it's like I was I was a god at night, but then I was still a kid during the day who had no real philosophy, who'd still had and who was wrestling with his ego and his self identity and you know anxieties and doubts and all that kind of you know all the stuff that that you that you are still dealing with you know with the, mm-hmm. at at those younger ages so absolutely it became very difficult i was i became obsessed you know because it's like how, i just wanted to enter these euphoric realms again it's like and i couldn't you know again it took me a long time to understand well what what is it about this quality? What? Why is this so euphoric? What is going on exactly? And, you know, it took me a long time to understand that it was the freedom of being fully conscious without being pulled by, uh, by this, by some storyline, by some, by some context. I, you can completely jump outside your context. And I, it took me years to understand, oh, that's kind of what, we're all doing all the time. You know, we live in this, these tightly knit contexts during our day, you know, our storyline that we, that we, uh, adhere to, you know, of, of our life, you know, like, well, I gotta, I gotta get up in the morning and I gotta go to work and then I've got to do this at home. And this is the, these are the things I'm dealing with financially. These are the things I'm dealing with in my relationships and da, 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 da. And then, you know, we're always looking for some reprieve, right? We're always looking to some way to escape that. And, you know, I had found, this ultimate escape where I was, where, you know, my body was asleep. So I didn't even have to deal with my body. And then I was in these fully conscious realms where I could do anything. And that's the thing when you're in that state and you're fully conscious, 
you know, you can do anything. I mean, you're like a, you're like a God in your own little, in your own little world, you know, you could do whatever you want. And, uh, but you said I I had found Ian, you said I had found, but actually it's more like it unfolded. It was presented. It, that's how it felt. Yes. Yeah. And so um, how did the younger you explain that? I I could, I could see where you think, okay, am I, Am I getting some kind of like special messages? Am I tapping into the collective unconsciousness? Am I right. do? Am I some sort of spiritual being? <laughs> like, because I'm guessing you're asking other people, and in general, people are saying, "I don't know what you're talking about." Like, totally. What are and so? I mean, how do you, how did you explain that? You know, I I would say that that ultimate question is still something that I, I would not claim to have all the answers to of like why this, what exactly was entering my consciousness. And, and the best that I would say is the way you've described it, that, that, that consciousness is a very funny thing that at the, at, once you get through all those layers of that context that I've been talking about, once you get through all those layers of identity, once you move above all of that, that there is a, there is absolutely a universal consciousness that is really free from any limiting narrative at all. I mean, it can, it is pure freedom. And when you are that, I would say that is your true identity right now. I would say that the best, the best that I can describe is that that larger, you know, that pure consciousness, that collective conscious just sort of seeped into my, you know, into my life. And that's where it started. It started with lucid dreaming, but, but my feeling was that it could have inserted itself into my life in a lot of different ways. Lucid dreaming was, was the path that worked for my ego, I suppose, because I was a very rational when I, and I'm, I'm still a very rational kind of individual. I probably get that from my father. So there was still a large part of me that for years I was still, even though I may have not completely admitted it to myself, there was a, there was the logical part of myself that could still say, yeah, but you know, it's still just a dream. This is still just happening at night, you know, and I could kind of like still kind of put that away in a box during the day, if that makes sense. I could still rationalize it. But then there was also another part that knew, and I was starting to learn more and more, like there is something much, much bigger going on here. This is not simply just something that's happening during, you know, at night in my head, especially when these, when these experiences started moving into, as I've touched on, what we call astral projection. And when that started happening, I started realizing that I was really able to truly touch on realities and realms that were beyond my physical body. I was able to come back with information that I absolutely should not have had access to. Here, Ian takes his lucid dreaming experience to a place where I struggle to stay with him. And I think part of this is language dependent. For certain words and phrases represent ideas that speak to our past experiences, that somehow feel congruent and true. And other words and phrases, they don't, for whatever reason. Ian uses the terms astral projection and out-of-body experience to describe how he was able to somehow transcend his physical three-dimensional body and go other places in space-time. At first he lost me as... I've long thought of -of out-of-body experiences as a mental or psychological phenomenon, but not an actual physical reality. Out-of-body experiences are typically catalyzed by a non-ordinary state of consciousness, such as being under the influence of ketamine, or having a seizure, or, as Ian describes, while having a lucid dream. I did, however, finally resonate with how Ian came to explain these experiences, as evidence for consciousness being non-local, unified, collective, somehow able to transcend space-time. Though I still think of this leaving the body idea as a metaphor, not an actual process, I do think that it may well be possible to access the collective unconscious through various non-ordinary states of consciousness, including psychedelics. When that, when that started happening, and that took a couple more years for that to start kicking in, that that started really freaking me out because then I had to say, all right, this isn't just something that's going on 
in my dreams. This is something that is much larger. This is, I'm going to have to really start taking this way more seriously that this isn't just a fun, a fun thing that's happening at night. You know, I was probably, I, I was definitely becoming a very philosophical person at a pretty young age for for sure i mean by the by the time i was 21 i was you know i was running my mouth probably more than i should have because i really felt like oh yeah you know i'm the you know i'm the buddha now basically right like that's i have got this all i've got one. i've got this whole spiritual thing totally under wraps this is you know i totally understand what's going on but then then my ego would get completely pummeled with some other new experience which just brought everything up to a next level and i'd be like Okay. Before talking sure. to you, my, my I didn't know much about lucid dreaming, but mm-hmm. I thought of it as something that was very interesting and uh, emotionally powerful and yes. compelling, but not necessarily something that had right. value in and of itself or that allowed you to access other insights realms, or wisdom right? or realms. Yeah, I, that, that's news to me. It, and it was it was news to me too. I mean, so now that's if you're on the internet and you're you've got you know your connections to these kind of groups where these where this where these conversations are taking place, it's very easy to find that connection right now. It was not that was not a connection I had even suspected or ever. Uh, you know, I had no reason to even think there was any connection between why would there be a connection between this lucid dreaming and what we call an out-of-body experience. And now where I am now in retrospect, it completely makes sense. Those two go hand in hand actually. So, but what happened at first before I understood any of these connections at all? Uh, I started in my lucid dreams, I started, you know, going, well, what, you know, what can I do next? You know what? Cause you know, after a while you, you're kind of like a god in these states, like I said. So I said, well, what, you know, where can I go? So I would go see, like, I'd go check in on my mom, you know, or my dad or friends and family. Just, you know, like, well, what, you know, can I connect with people? Like, what does that mean? Like, am I connecting with what my vision is, is of my mother in my subconscious? You know, I didn't really, I didn't really know what that meant, but I thought, hey, from a psychological perspective, that might be interesting to go, you know, go connect with people who I actually know in my daily life. So the first, one of the first things I did was I went to visit quote unquote, my mother. And at the time I was in Muncie, Indiana, I was, uh, uh, at, I was in college. I was, uh, uh, actually I was working for Bob Ross. I don't, I don't know if you know who Bob Ross is the happy little trees guy who did the, who did the painting stuff on PBS, mm-hmm. uh, years ago, his studio was run out of, uh, uh, out of, a a small, small outfit in Muncie, Indiana. And so my mother was still outside of Chicago where I'm from. So she was some, you know, 150, 200 miles away. Right. So what I did is I, I just kind of projected myself into, into my home to see if I could find her. And I found myself in my living room and just kind of observing. And I saw my mother in the kitchen through the living room. And I watched her just kind of she was like making breakfast and I just kind of observed the scene for about two, three minutes. You know, I just kind of took everything in like, there she is. And I tried to, you know, say something, but there was no, you know, there wasn't any response. You know, I didn't feel there was a real connection to what was going on. Um, and I kind of looked at the, the, the wall of uh, the clock on the wall. And I, I looked and I said, okay, it's like seven twenty, And I kind of took a, uh, I observed everything that was going on, what she was wearing. And then she, she did something funny. She pulled these pans out from under the stove and she dropped this giant frying pan. Like, and it just, and she, you know, I just heard her say, you know, God damn it. You know, that sort of thing. And, and uh, I just kind of giggled and whatnot. Then I, you know, I went back and, and I woke up later on. So out of curiosity, and it was just pure curiosity, I I called my mom later on in the day. I said, "Mom, just just bear with me for a second. I said, "You need, you need to tell me. Just tell me exactly, exactly what were you doing at at about quarter after seven, seven twenty in the morning this morning." And as she starts laying out the details of what happened and everything, and I asked, I said, "Did you drop that giant frying pan underneath the stove?" and she just paused and she's like, "My, how, do, how the hell do you know that? She's like, you're, 
you're in you're at school, right? You're you're at, you're in college. I'm like, yeah. And I said, Mom, what were you wearing? And you know, she tells me what she was wearing, and the whole thing completely lined up, right? So I didn't want to hear that. I mean, I didn't want to hear that at all. That wasn't fun to me, right? That wasn't like, ooh, how cool, you know? That was like, okay, that was that scared the crap out of me. I'm a skeptic to the last. I mean, I really am. And I, I still am to this day on some, on some level. I still said, all right, you know, I know my mother, I know her habits. None of this means anything. You know, this is still, I'm still, I'm still going to put this under coincidence that, you know, that, uh, that I know so much about her and I know her behaviors and I might've known, you know, like, well, she would have been getting ready for work at this time, yada, yada. But then these continued and they just kept piling up where I would, and they got more and more specific. Was it? Uh, I mean, it sounds like it's starting to get incredibly interesting and scary. And I mean, did it start to get a little dark? I mean, to this thought so it, that, that you, yeah. I mean, I could see where you're thinking, okay, either A, I have sort of, yeah, special powers or I am <laughs> losing my mind or right. like, something is, something is not, like most people are not doing this. And w- what is, I, yeah, I could just imagine that this would be thrilling and kind it of was horrifying. At the it same was exciting. Time. The, the, the astral projections were at first in, before I could really prove it, there, I would say the experience I'm laying out now is one of the first times where I'm like, okay, this is too specific. I, I feel like calling this coincidence is now getting to the point where that's inappropriate. And I'm going to have to start looking at this from another perspective, these just kept happening over and over where I kept on being able to, you know, uh, confer with other people and go, okay, this is, this is not just, this can't be coincidence. What is the connection between lucid dreaming and this projection to be able to release your consciousness. And what I have now, and the books that I'm now writing are all based around this philosophy that it all comes back to breaking away from the narrative that you're presented with, whatever that narrative is. And that narrative can be your daily life, but it doesn't have to be. It can be any narrative. We get, we are, there's something about consciousness that it seems to be drawn to storyline. We are storytelling creatures. Mm-hmm. There is something about us at our, at the deepest part of our nature. And I have a theory about why I do believe that it has something to do with that. That storylines are essentially, they are order from chaos. It, 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 you know, essentially that's what we're really talking about. I mean, a story is basically just taking billions of pieces of information, right? And streamlining it into a nice, well, I did this and then I did this and then this happened. You see what I'm saying? It's a nice, it's order from chaos. And I think there's something about our attention that loves that. We love storylines. And so whether that storyline is presented to us during the day, you know, the story of our life, you know, whatever, however we would define the story of our life, but we can get attached to that or we can get attached to any narrative, even of course, at night, at night, we're kind of disconnected from our daily storyline, right? Now we're, you know, the body is asleep, you know, we're not really dealing with that, but then another story can be presented to us. And that is, of course, the dream state. But that's, it's like these narratives act almost like as a cage on some level. They, they restrict your consciousness to the, to the limitations of the context that you are bound within. Once you become lucid in a dream state, you are now, your body's asleep, right? So you're not connected to your body and you're not connected to the narrative anymore. So that is the last thread that is keeping your consciousness in a limited localized area. So once you break away in lucid dreaming, once you become aware that you're lucid dreaming, yeah, it turns out your consciousness can do anything it wants to. So that's what started proving to me, oh, consciousness is not just something that lives, you know, 
behind your eyes, somewhere in your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that can extend beyond, mm-hmm. you know, whatever that means, it can go beyond. is that consciousness is not localized and that has a lot of implications so when i started experiencing that uh that really really profoundly disturbed me where i started going into these states of awareness where i could sort of astral project out of my body but then i could then be in multiple places at once and now when i say that uh you can't even you can't your your our minds are so linear and so limited you can't really probably even um understand what i'm saying because if if i say that i saw things from two different perspectives you might think of kind of like an overlay you know when a movie has like a transition from one scene to another or you might see of like something like a split screen when you're you know like or like when you're in a zoom meeting and you can see things from two different screens right that is not what i'm talking about I would be able to go into states of consciousness where there were two truly perfectly realized perspectives happening simultaneously, mm. not like a dissolve or a split screen. I'm talking two completely realized perspectives. And that broke me because it's like that. I felt like I broke something at some fundamental level is how it felt. You know, I was like, wake, I would wake up and go, did, I don't. I don't know who I am anymore. Like my, it's like that. Sh- that shatters your ego at such a core level because it's you know your your self identity. You like to think of yourself as being just in one place at one time. You know, you have this idea like, well, I'm me. I'm this. You know, you know, I'm whatever this is that's living behind my eyes. I'm I'm in a I'm in a very specific point. You know, if that follows in mm-hmm. in 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 a place in, in, in space and time. But it turns out in terms of consciousness, that means nothing to consciousness that, that uh, consciousness can do whatever the heck it wants to. And uh, that really disturbed me though. That is very, it's very disturbing to be in two places at once. It turns out. So uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I didn't like that. With increasingly severe sleep deprivation, Ian descended into chaos and fear, wondering what was real and what was not. Now, we know that REM sleep is crucial for restoring emotional resilience and maintaining mood stability. And as lucid dreaming took over his nights, he began to feel increasingly unstable and disconnected from his world. It's still not clear to me what parts of Ian's experiences here were due to the transient psychosis of sleep deprivation and which were an extreme and unusual manifestation of his lucid dreaming. Whatever the case, Ian's increasingly frightening experience speaks to why sleep deprivation has long been used as a primary form of torture to break people down mentally and emotionally. It was those kind of experiences that actually made me pull back from lucid dreaming and whatnot. I, I became so frightened of these experiences. I, I I didn't know what was happening. And I was just like, I started feeling like I was going crazy wow. and I did not have the philosophy. Like we've been saying, yeah. I did not have the philosophy to back this up. I'm curious, like, it's, again, it sounds like you're going deeper, deeper, deeper mm-hmm. into these, into these realities. Whereas you said you can hold two or more complete yes. uh, awarenesses uh, or context at the same time and then you're saying okay, it's getting really scary i feel like i'm, I'm kind of breaking my brain or and you want yeah. how do you how did you pull back I and mean, did you have some kind of ability no i didn't do it on on purpose it's not like i was like well i'm done i'm gonna turn that button off you know i'm gonna flip that switch it just it's like once well, it was more of just kind of a conscious thing i suppose where i'm like i'm freaked out i'm i'm frightened and i don't I, I didn't want to go into the, I was, there was a while where I was afraid to go to sleep. Uh, and yeah, once that started, once that started happening, they did kind of just stop. And like I said, they, they tapered off at around this, these experiences tapered off for the most part. I still have them 
to this day, but they're much more rare. And I, I've also learned there's a reason for that too. The, these tapered off right around, I'd say in my early thirties, somewhere around there, somewhere in that general, like, you know, it's like these started just kind of pulling back. And it was mostly because, like I said, it's like my brain was full, I guess you could say. Like I had experienced, by the time I was, say, in my mid-30s, I had then had thousands of these experiences. What would have led them to taper off you know, in your early 30s? You, you said like it was almost like the hard drive is full or yeah. like you, you've reached some kind of like uh, – Psycho spiritual tolerance, you know, like you yeah. had so much. That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put you, it. That's good. Yeah, you just didn't need or couldn't really process more. I couldn't process anymore. And plus, on top of it, because some of these experiences were taking up the majority of my nightlife, I wasn't dreaming properly. I was not going into REM sleep really properly anymore. And, you know, there's, you need that. You really do. You still need to let. You know, you can't be in control all the time. You can't be conscious all the time and be dealing with our daily life. You know, we we know this. I mean, I know I don't have to explain this to you. Dreaming is is essential yeah. to well, us. REM, and REM sleep's how we yes recharge our emotional batteries. It's how we restore resilience. You know, I think of people who are REM sleep deprived as heading towards breakdown, whether that's sort of anxious that's where panic I was. breakdown or psychotic breakdown or manic breakdown, but if, that's if how it you felt. Drive people of REM, they will lose their minds, and that's what—that's exactly where I was heading. I mean, I was there was a there was so many times where I'm like, I can't deal with this anymore. Like, I I this is too much. I don't. I'm not prepared for this. I don't understand what's happening, and the implications were were so profound. I didn't know how to conduct my daily life anymore. You know, I didn't know where to go from there, and uh, so I went from being the loud mouth, like, yeah, I've got everything under control. I, you know, I'm basically the Buddha now. I got, I got this all under control to just going, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm tired of, I don't even want to tell the stories about this anymore. This has just freaked me out. And I just, I pulled back completely. It's almost as if your journey there in your twenties to early thirties with lucid dreaming sort of paralleled what happens with almost with addiction or, or a lot of the substance use that it's, you know, it's exciting and vivid at first and it can take you to places you haven't been. And it's this thrilling journey. And then it starts to get more and more intense and, you know, it can eventually get to the point where it's too much. Like you're not getting, you know, the negatives outweighing the positive. You're not getting the benefits. It's starting to get scary. And, and for you, as you described, like a fundamental process of, of your brain, REM sleep was not happening and you're realizing, okay, I can't keep doing this. So on, a, on the physical level, my solution to that was opiates, as you, as you talk about addiction. I mean, once I found opiates, opiates to me, it's like it was the perfect answer in many ways, as, as you were saying. It's like it seemed like the perfect solution. Uh, I was for, you know, for minor surgery, I was first given some Percocet and I absolutely adored it. It's like Percocet gave me the nice, fuzzy, warm numbness that it's like, you know, it's like I had been living my life like kind of like an exposed nerve, if that makes sense. It's almost like that's how it felt. It's like I was just this exposed nerve that was absolutely aware and conscious all the time. Like I couldn't even get any sleep, right? And then I found opiates and oh my God, I could suddenly go into this nice, comfortable, fuzzy, warm womb, right? And I could just, and I could sleep and opiates, I would sleep and it was perfect. I would sleep for 10 hours and it was fantastic that's 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 what opiates were like so i i i turned into a huge addict uh i got to the point where you know in the like i think i had mentioned earlier that um when we were talking before that i was i i was never a non-functioning addict but uh 
but it certainly wasn't a good thing where I was, you know, just, you know, once you start on an opiate addiction, it's not like you can just set it aside. It's kind of like, you know, that thing will be tapping on your shoulder every day going, yeah, well, you know, what are you going to do? You better find a solution to this. So I eventually went from Percocets and, you know, and I realized that that was too unreliable finding, finding uh, any sort of Percocet supply. And I started, uh, I started just making my own. I I got a I got addicted to opium tea, and it turned out that uh, find at the time that's not really the case anymore. But at the time, getting the resources to make opium tea was 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 really quite easy and really very inexpensive. Uh, so I started creating my own uh, opiate elixir, so to speak, and I uh, and I I was on that for years and years. So uh, that sort of that sort of was my solution, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, you it was know, a solution until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. Until it just got uh, to to the point where, okay, I'm just, you know, I, I'm just, I'm opiated out, and I I was not feeling anything after a while. Uh, where I realized, like, you know, it does something not just to your physical body. I mean, opiates have all sorts of weird things where I wasn't really feeling my emotions properly anymore. And I, and I was, after a long time, I was missing the lucid dreaming after a while. I kind of felt like, uh, the opiates did kind of serve their purpose really on some weird level. I mean, they did what I wanted them to do, but then, you know, it's, it it got to the point where I couldn't say no to them. So I, I had to, after a long time, I'm like, all right, I need, I need to get off of this. This is not worth, this is not a lifestyle I can, uh, I can continue with. Uh, so I, I eventually found solutions to that as well through, uh, through another hallucinogen. It turns out, uh, Ibogaine, I, I did Ibogaine. I, I dosed myself with the African root Iboga and, uh, that, that helped tremendously. It didn't fix the problem. It didn't fix the problem, but it, it, it helped tremendously. Yeah. about the process of how you decided to go down the Ibogaine road, how you prepared for that, what that actual experience looked like. So I started doing research online. I started going, all right, well, I started, you know, I was always a researcher. I I always had the brain on me. So none of this was ever done unconsciously. I, I understood what an opiate was. I understood that we have opiate receptors and I started understanding, okay, well, there's, how do, how do you get off of this? What is the best way to do this? And I, and I had, I had touched on withdrawal a few times where I just had run out of my supply of, of, uh, of opium or, or whatever. And, uh, I knew that that was really unpleasant. I mean, withdrawal was just so, you know, it, it, it shuts you down for that can shut you down for a couple of weeks. And I, and I had a job there was, um, it wasn't even something I could do. I'm like, I can't just withdraw for two weeks, you know, and try to maintain, you know, and go to work. So I had to find some other solution. I think Ian downplays here, the utter hell of opioid withdrawal, possibly because of the gut wrenching intensity of his Ibogaine detox as you're about to hear. Still, it's really important to understand why Ian would have chosen a detox option, which necessitated many hours of nausea, vomiting, delirium, hallucinations, and obtundation. Opioid withdrawal is day after day after day after day of unbearable fatigue, diarrhea, nausea, and depression, and restlessness, and unending insomnia. The withdrawal syndrome of any drug is always the opposite of its primary pharmacological effects. Opioids catalyze a profound sensation of inner emotional warmth, an energized euphoria, a disappearance of fear, and the near-complete resolution of any physical or emotional pain. Thus, the opioid withdrawal syndrome, in addition to its horrific physical symptoms, creates a psychospiritual withdrawal characterized by feeling absolutely alone completely vulnerable, 
emotionally raw, with utter elimination of any remaining emotional resilience and confidence and sense that the world is ever going to be okay. Given this unimaginable option, Ian chose a different, though much riskier path. I was just doing research, like, oh, okay, what does this look like? And it looked like from what their what their information was is that ibogaine is really weird. Uh, it is a it is a psychoactive, but it is it does it does appear to snap into those opiate receptors, and yet it's not an opiate, and it stays there. It like it will it will snap into your empty opiate receptors, which is again where all of your agony comes from. That you've got these you know these starving opiate receptors that aren't being filled with opiates when you're going through withdrawal, and but ibogaine snaps into that. It seems to be a chemical that, that that fits itself into that, and it will stay there for they they think it would stay there for about thirty days or so, and then it sort of drifts off. So on the chemical level, it's like it, there's a perfection to ibogaine. Now, before I it starts sounding like I am just singing the praises of ibogaine. Uh, I'm just simply speaking about on a chemical level, what it does chemically, it is amazing. I mean, that's, it's exactly what you'd want. If you want to get off an opiate, you know, and you are willing to, you know, kind of go through a little bit of withdrawal and the agony because you, you know, you're basically with, you know, you're replacing all of those opiates in, in the, in your brain with this other chemical and it stays with you for weeks and, uh, but, uh, and you purge really heavily uh, during this experience. I mean, and you go, it's a psychoactive, like I said. So you are uh, in a hallucinatory state and you are purging and uh, mm-hmm. very heavily. And yeah. it lasts, how and the when, experience lasts about 16 hours or yeah. so. So, how and when did you decide after that process of research that after I had enough, it's time, time to do yeah. it? Once I had enough under information in my belt and I felt I understood it, I did all of the math for my body weight and and everything else, and uh, I said, "Okay, I'm I'm doing this." And so basically, what I did is, I I I stopped taking the the opium tea for about 24 hours, and I let that kind of I kind of waited till I waited until the point where I would be looking for like another dose, you know, right around that time where I'm like, "All right, I'm starting to feel." Uh, unpleasant right and uh that's right about the time where you take uh and i'm using two different terms but and this may be confusing to people who have no uh familiarity with this there's iboga iboga is just the raw root okay that's just what and i cannot remember the exact there's you know the latin name for for the for the root out there um but then they can isolate it just like you can isolate anything you know you break it down to it's just to its active constituents and that's what you call ibogaine all right so there's iboga and then there's ibogaine so what i did is i first started with a small dose of iboga just the natural root and that's supposed to the idea is that you just take that at first just to see to make sure that um you're not gonna have any like a uh an allergic reaction to it or any kind of weird you know some sort of crazy reaction so i took iboga at first let that settle in for a couple hours. I felt pretty comfortable. You do this on an empty stomach, so things were kicking in pretty fast. And then I took uh, the other, the rest of the ibogaine, which was the the concentrated, uh, the isolated version of that. And uh, then I, what you do is you have to lay down. You have to go into some room. I brought fluids and I brought a bucket because I knew I'd be throwing up. And you dim the lights. And uh, no one was with me, and I I was living alone at the time. I had just gotten out of a relationship, and I said, I I didn't want anybody around. I, I people knew. I I had told my some close friends and family. I said, Hey, this is what I'm doing. You know, I'm doing this to myself. Uh, I was pretty open about my addiction to to a few of the the closer people in my life, and uh, they knew I'd been researching this stuff, and uh, so. I had people on a, you know, if I needed to contact them on my cell phone, I I could have, but I felt confident that I could do this alone and I could get through it. And, um, I mean, I did get through it, but I would say that this, it was still an absolute mistake. I should never have done this alone. I, I was not prepared for how incredibly powerful the experience was. And maybe I took too much. I mean, it's possible that they gave me too much for my body weight. I, that that was not 
that that wasn't the math that I had done, and and they agreed. I had other people who had who distributed this stuff who said, you know, this is this is the correct dosage. So, yeah. uh, can you uh, run us through like how that experience felt? What you experienced mentally, physically, emotionally? How that evolved over the hours and days? So the first thing that is really that was really frightening was that it drains you of your energy. And I had heard that. I had done the research. But I, I didn't really know what that meant. I'm like, okay, so you're going to be tired. It's not like you're tired. It's like it does something to your body where all of the energy, like it's like it's like my energy just seeped out of my muscles and just you know just evaporated, and moving became difficult. That freaked me out because then I realized, wow, I'm kind of kind of trapped in my bed. Like I really couldn't move very well. It does something to your body. I, I still don't really understand that exactly. I don't understand the-, the Like you were incapacitated. You know, it was like you're incapacitated. I mean, it was like my muscles barely worked. I could, don't get me wrong. I could get up and I could get some water and do basic things. But then on top of that, not only does it rob you of your energy, it also, it does something to your equilibrium uh, that I compared to uh, like seasickness, but it's like seasickness times a hundred. So, and this is why when people do this in a professional settings and, and there are, there are, you know, this, this is actually legal in several countries like Canada and Mexico and Germany. You know, this is of course not the United States because we're always behind everything where when this is done in a professional setting, you, you wear an eye mask and you do this in a completely, almost a, almost a completely dark room. Well, I, now again, I had heard this, that you would get nauseous, that you'd get kind of like a seasick feeling, but I had no, I was not prepared for how intense this was. Mm-hmm. All I had to do, I still had some light coming in through my window because I started this at around 11 in the morning or so, because I knew I'd be doing, I'd be dealing with this for the next 17, 20 hours or so. So I started this, you know, earlier in the day, just the light coming through my room. If I turned my head too quickly at all just from the little bit of light coming through the shades it's like the whole all of my vision would just become a swirling nauseous mess of wave and color and it was horrible so all you can do is just lay back real still and just let it do its thing and uh then you just start throwing up and i probably i can't tell you how many times i threw up i i must have thrown up a dozen times over the next 20 hours i was nauseous i was sick i couldn't move um I, scared? I mean you're alone and i was i i got pretty scared definitely but uh it, it was still not at the it was still following the basic pattern of what i had researched right so i didn't i, I didn't like go okay you know, I didn't. I I wasn't really a point where I felt, man, I'm not going to call an ambulance and like, and I and I kept thinking like, if I called some sort of medical professional, what are they going to do with me? They're not going to really know what to do. You know, I had a feeling they're not educated with this thing that I just took, I, and so I wasn't. I guess I felt that I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't totally confident that they that even the doctors would really know what to do with me in this state, and so I decided to just bear, you know, to just kind of go through it, and it was rough. There were a couple of times I had to go to the bathroom. The bucket was absolutely not enough. I mean, I was purging. I had to go and I was, I was urinating constantly. So it got to the point where I had to go to the bathroom and the bathroom in this apartment that I was in at the time was literally 15 feet away from my bedroom door. And to get there would take, I bet it took me about a half an hour to get from my bedroom to my bathroom. And I'm talking, I had to crawl slowly on my hands and knees slowly so that I, so that I wouldn't throw up again, so that I wouldn't jostle my body too much. It's like, God, just thinking about it. It's like, it's bringing back nightmares. It's like your whole body is beyond nauseous. And, uh, it's like, if somebody just, this sounds possibly worse than opioid withdrawal, you know, but the thing about it is that the idea is that you're, it's almost like you're doing two weeks of withdrawal in one day. That's the idea is what you're kind of doing.
this went on, I mean, and and then of course you're hallucinating on top of it. And again, I'm experienced with hallucinate, you know, with hallucinogens. The hallucinogen part did not really bother me. I was fine with that. I mean, yeah, you what's know, happening mentally and emotionally? So physically, as you said, <sighs> sort of crushing two so, weeks, three weeks of opioid withdrawal into one just right hell this, period. Yeah, what's, so you visions upon visions, uh, and that were just like all very metaphorical, you know. Uh, as I as I had mentioned before, like I had, I kind of you know imagined myself for the longest time, like, oh, well, I've got all this under control. I'm I'm like the Buddha, right? No problems, you know. And so some of my visions were like seeing these old Buddhist statues, like covered in like drenched in a swamp, like like they were just filthy and they were slowly emerging out of this out of this filth and muck and this this like this black tar you know all the all the the toxins and whatnot were like slowly pouring off of these statues of buddhas and whatnot so i'd see stuff like that was any of the content important you know it sounds like it was a really powerful detox that i want to it was here in a few minutes what were the results of that but the actual you know the emotional mental con content of that session was that uh, important during or after it was it was not like there was a specific vision that that uh that was really like oh that's a metaphor for something it was more of a general sense of because of what was happening what i had done to myself and that i had isolated myself in my apartment and all of this crazy stuff was happening i was overwhelmed with feeling of, of just isolation. I was overwhelmed with isolation, mm. the, you know, also on an emotional level. And that was really, really difficult. That was difficult on an emotional level that I was just dealing with this huge sense of feeling alone and separated from everything. And, you know, and of course that went back to everything that I had been dealing with as well, not just from the opiate addiction that I had kept quiet for the majority of, of, of my addiction. I kept quiet. I didn't mention it to anyone, but also just from my experiences, from all the experiences I'm telling you about with, you know, as, as exciting as this lucid dreaming and the astral projection, as, as exciting as that might sound from an outsider's perspective, all of that stuff really does isolate you. I mean, it really does isolate you from your fellow man that you can't really you know, it's, you know, again, most people cannot relate. Most people are just like, that sounds crazy. And, you know, they look at you like you're either, you're either full of crap, you're either lying or you're crazy, or, I mean, none of their reactions, you know, none of it adds up to anything good, right? It's all one option or another that's, you know, that none of it comes down to taking your, your story at face value if you have no experience with that. So, so that's what I was kind of wrestling with is just the isolation. And then, uh, but you know what, slowly, slowly, by the time the night went through and by, by the time it was like four in the morning, the next day, my energy slowly started returning. The nausea slowly started wearing off. And, uh, and, uh, I, I was kind of like that exposed nerve again. And even though I was not withdrawing like I said, it does tap into those opiate receptors. And I felt that it did that. I was not going through that, that kind of withdrawal anymore. So I had, I had gotten past that, but you know, for the simple fact that you're not on opiates anymore, that's that, that in and of itself is rough, even without withdrawal, you know what I'm saying? Like just the, uh, all of my, that exposed nerve sensation came back in full force again. And my lucid dreaming immediately kicked in like, you know, 300% immediately. Like, so like, you know, the next, the next several days, my lucid dreaming was just off the wall intense, which I was fine with. I mean, I was, you know, I had the experience with it. I was okay with that, but uh, I had to kind of relearn how to deal with uh, just, you know, not being on opiates again. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't recommend it without, without, uh, total supervision from a medical professional. Yeah. So it's fair to say what the Ibogaine experience did was um, sort of fast forward the awful opioid withdrawal, sort yes, of concentrate yes. it, but it didn't fix the problem. It didn't change your life. It didn't change the psychological longing or dependence per se that you still then in the days, weeks, and months afterwards, you still had to do the work of 
Absolutely. Figuring out how you're going to live without opioids. How am I going to live with it? And how am I going to deal with it psychologically? And luckily, again, by that point in my life, I had learned how to meditate. And that is, I would say, if there's one thing that has been the the lifesaver in my life, even more so than any of the lucid dreaming or the projection or any of my crazy experiences, I would say that I learned how to meditate uh, at a fairly young age, and that was uh, that was a godsend. That I was I learned how to do that. So my meditations helped me so so much. When they say you're an addict forever, I really am. I mean, I'm. Uh, I know I'm not on opiates anymore, but uh, occasionally I will take what's called kratom. Mm-hmm. Kratom is how it's actually apparently pronounced is what uh, uh, Hamilton says on Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia on Vice, but uh, Kratom is something I'll take occasionally. But like right now, I've not had Kratom in like two weeks. I, I, it's it's like my relationship with opiates has changed forever. There's not the desperate need, but but anytime any, I'm around anyone and someone even mentions, oh, I've got some Percocet, my ears immediate will will prick up and go, oh, really? Do you have perhaps two Percocets, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. that's just, and that's probably just how my life, you know, it's how it is, you know, it's just what it is. So, uh, yeah. So where are you now today after, I mean, you've been through some powerful experiences in, in your twenties with lucid dreaming and, right. and yeah, and tapping into this sort of non-local consciousness and then this whole other phase of seem, seeming like finding opioids as kind of a spiritual salve and a way to right. power through and, and continue your, your creative process. And that worked until it didn't. And now post both of those experiences where where are you today so today now i am i've kind of taken all all of these experience and and more that of course we've not even had time to discuss uh but i've taken all of these experiences and i'm and i've been kind of bringing them all together they have started to unify and gel into one larger theory and this really started i i really started this deeply around seven years ago and i started writing a book it was a it was a book that i had i had a story that had been brewing in my head god possibly forever that i had a story kind of brewing in the back of my head even since i was a little kid and it's evolved so much over the years. And I finally started writing this thing down. I said, I'm going to start writing this, this book. I want to write this story. And that's what I started doing. And, and it was fiction. Basically it was taking all of my crazy experiences, everything that I had, I had dealt with from the lucid dreaming to the spiritual kind of aspects of it to, and even the rougher stuff, my demons, I took all of it and I poured all of this into uh, this book, and that was my first novel, uh, Tripping the Field. I found a, uh, uh, I found a an indie publisher out of Oregon who was willing to not change any of any any of it. There was a lot of people who who looked at. It, they're like, well, I want to. I don't want to have so much drug use in the book, or I don't want to have so much uh, discussion about religion or or certain things like that. And so I kind of had to turn them away. But I found a wonderful publisher out of Oregon who took my book as is, and so. Then when I started, when, when the book was published, I kind of started doing like radio shows and podcasts where I would kind of talk about the book. And then what I didn't expect was that naturally people would ask me like, Hey, this is a crazy book that you've written. This is a wild adventure that deals with, you know, psychedelics and quantum physics and all this nuts stuff. Like, where did you get the inspiration for this? So then I kind of started talking about this stuff again for the first time in years and years. And as I started talking about this again, and through writing that book, I, I started, uh, all of this stuff started to really gel. Well, it's not like it started to gel. The, the reality was that it had gelled and I just wasn't aware of it. I'm like, Oh wow. All of this stuff has really been gelling for years. And I really, I've really walked away with a really, a very uh, unified theory of everything that's going on. So now I'm in a place where I 
I can speak about this stuff. And so now when I, when I come across a problem in my life or any of my tendencies towards whether it's addiction or depression or anything like that, I now, I can see it through this larger perspective. I can see it through this, uh, you know, this unified theory of how consciousness works. You know, like as we were talking about earlier, this larger perspective of consciousness. 